It's been a pleasure, an honor, a privilege, a delight to be with you, and I mean it. You have encouraged me in so many different ways. Uh, I appreciate your uh, wholeheartedness that has been evidenced in various ways, and I just want to encourage you uh, to make the most of your time here at Emmaus Bible College. There are many of us who would say, we didn't do that. Many of us who went to Emmaus Bible College are graduates of this fine institution of learning who would say, if we could do it over again, we would have done things differently. And I want to encourage you to realize you can make choices now, you can choose wisely to really soak up like a sponge every opportunity and all the instruction that is yours in the classroom. I'm not saying to you I blew off my whole time here, so don't misunderstand. But I am saying to you this, make the most of it. Make the most of it. You are privileged people to be here. Maybe you don't always have that perspective in gaze, but you are privileged to be here. And you have uh, incredible instructors and staff who not only want to pour in to your lives truth, so you might learn, but they care deeply about your spiritual walk and they want you to live out the things that you're learning. So if you haven't realized it yet, understand you are in a fantastic place. And this is a place where your life can radically be changed and conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and transform. So uh, don't check out, make the most of your time here. We are going to put a bow on our series today. We are landing the plane, and we're going to just do so with some quick, uh, quick thoughts for your consideration. And Peter does that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 13 and following. If you're not there like me, I'd invite you to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning, be reminded of our theme for these days together. We, uh, we began asking and answering or encouraging you to answer the question, what is the condition of my heart? I mean, seriously, the Lord knows he sees, he examines your heart's attitude before him. You need to face the music and do the same. What is the true condition of your heart spiritually? No fooling. And we gave you several options for your consideration to uh, classify or determine or label, if you will, the condition of your heart. We talked about Saul having no heart. We talked about the natural man in 1 Corinthians. That, that is some of you, I'm sure, that you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so you are in your natural condition, totally depraved, Saul-like, no heart. We talked about David. David, not perfect. Don't you love that? But David, who was a man after God's own heart. I love what it says about David in Acts chapter 13. David served the purposes of God in his generation, and then he died. That's how it ought to go. Unless the Lord Jesus comes back for us, which would be very much better, unless the Lord Jesus comes back for us, that would be a great statement for our life in summary. Put your name in there. John served the purposes of God in his generation and he died. What a great summary. 
while we're on the planet for a brief period of time, that we would do exactly what it is we were supposed to do. And we would be exactly what it is we are supposed to be. And then we would go home. Unless the Lord would return first, which would be, again, very much better. Wholehearted is the goal. But the reality is that most of us would probably need to say more often than not, we're half-hearted, we're Solomon-like, we're lukewarm-like. And so we've been asking that question and hope you will try to answer it. What is the condition of your heart? And what needs to change as you honestly evaluate and assess? Like our great God does, he knows, he sees, and he examines our heart's attitude before him. We talked about a disease uh, that is a reality, a disease known as spiritual frostbite. Spiritual frostbite, and we said it happens for many reasons, often because of pride, arrogance, and ego. And we saw the, the triumph and tragedy of King Uzziah. I'm sure you haven't been in that passage terribly often, and a great one to just check it and remind ourselves about how we need help desperately. Don't you love that phrase? He was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. But when he was strong, he thought his strength came from himself. Pride, arrogance, and ego. Pitfalls causes us to be indeed spiritually frostbit. Last night we talked about the remedies. We talked about the prescriptions that the prophet Isaiah brings our way. We talked about the need to view God correctly. Holy, 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 that threefold repetition of the, the overarching attribute and quality of our great God. I suggested to you this last night and I'll say it again this morning. We need to realign and correct our thinking and view of God. We have softened him. And we view him in, in a way that is not consistent and complete with his attributes and his characteristics. And Isaiah had the perfect reminder for us in that special vision he received. And we need to view God correctly in all his splendor and glory, majesty and holiness. And when we view God correctly, we then view ourselves correctly and ought to say with the prophet Isaiah, woe are we. We're falling apart at the seams, we're undone. We saw that last night. When we view God correctly, it helps us view ourselves correctly. And thirdly, it causes us to appreciate and we were reminded of the need to see his forgiveness and cleansing correctly. A wonderful picture of the finished work of Christ. Cleansing and forgiveness that comes in and through our great God. Brought to us by the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Three prescriptions to avoid spiritual frostbite. View God correctly, view ourselves correctly, and view salvation, forgiveness, and cleansing correctly. And when we do, 
out of the overflow of our hearts, out of gratitude and appreciation for who God is and for what he's done for us in our fallen state, we should be willing to say, here I am. Here am I. Send me. I'm all in. Not because I have to be, but because I want to be and an expression of gratitude in light of who he is and all that he's done for me, it, make lo- it makes logical, plain sense that I would say, I'm all in. Whenever, wherever, whatever, as you wish. We find a similar situation in 1 Peter. Peter in uh, chapter one of 1 Peter has much to say about our salvation. It's very, very much a a passage that brings glory and blessing to God in light of our salvation. And then there's this testing of our faith for a little while that we have the, the privilege, as Peter would say elsewhere, we have the privilege to suffer well, suffer well for his namesake and glory. And so he has just talked about this in chapter one of 1 Peter, how great our salvation is and how it is our privilege to suffer for a little while that would prove the reality of our faith. At the end of this section, in verse 12, we could say much about this, but, but time would not allow. But I love the fact that the prophets of old and the angels long to look into and figure out God's plan of salvation. That's such a crazy concept. Imagine when the prophets were writing, when they were, had this special revelation, the inspired word of God, and they were writing down this information. And as they were writing, they were saying, I wonder how this is going to happen. I wonder where, I wonder when. Oh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, how about that? That's interesting. Imagine how they were interested in figuring out the details of this Messiah that was still to come. And the angels, as if it says, they long to stoop over the edge of heaven and watch God's salvific work taking place. And Peter's writing all about this plan of salvation and could go on and on about it like the half-brother of Jesus. And Jude says, I want to talk about salvation, but I can't. There's something more urgent, and it's this, fighting for the faith, Jude would say. And Peter does something very similar, having just talked about this salvation and our inheritance and how we ought to praise God for it and how the prophets and the angels were really interested and and made careful searches and inquiry and looked into over the edge of in order to watch God's plan of salvation come together. Now he says, it's time for you to make a decision. It's time for you to Get it together. It's time for you in light of everything that God is and all that he has done for us, very much like what we saw in Isaiah, in light of who he is, in light of who we are, in light of what he has done, it makes every bit of sense for us to do what Peter is saying here. He uses an expression, I love it. Some of you might have this in your translations. If you're using the New King James, perhaps, I'm reading from the end. ASB, New American Standard, but there's an expression that says this, gird up the loins of your mind. I love that. I wish we would say that to one another from time to time. We don't say that phrase very often. Do you use that in your vocabulary? Good morning. I hope you have a good day. Let's be certain today to gird up the loins of our mind. It's a great expression 
Gird your minds for action. It means this, be disciplined in your thinking. A figure of speech literally gird up the loins of your mind based upon the gathering, think about this, the gathering and the fastening up of the long eastern garments so they would not interfere with the individual's activity. Here's salvation so great. Here's a privilege for us to suffer well and have our faith tested and proven true. This salvation is so amazing. So let's get after it. Let's prepare our minds for action. It's really as if Peter were saying, let's go. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's, it's our last session this morning and, and appropriate for us to have language that is saying, what are you going to do? We see these heroes of old, Caleb and Joshua and others who were unashamedly willing to follow fully, wholeheartedly after our great God. What are we going to do with this body of information and this opportunity for us to, to make a, a decision of consecration like we saw Isaiah make last night? What are we going to do? What is your takeaway from not only this message but from our five? Grab a hold of one thought, one phrase, one concept. I've tried to highlight a few. If you're only going to think about one thing or remember one thing, remember this phrase or this prayer. Remember last night? God, help me to hate my sin and love you more. What are you going to remember? What are you going to take away? Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. And then he fires off these instructions without a whole lot of, uh, of comment as if we are supposed to understand indeed what they mean. So I'm not going to bring a lot of comment either. But he says this, keep sober in spirit. Know this, this, this is a, an incredible connection to your theme for the year. The battle that we see in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh in one corner versus the spirit in the other corner, actually indwelling every believer, and they're waging war every day. It's on now. Do you know that? Do you think about this battle this way, that right now as you sit here thinking about whatever you're thinking about, there's a battle between what you want to do, the works of the flesh, and what he, the Holy Spirit, wants to do in and through you, producing the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if I said this the other night. I wanted to, so if I didn't, here it is. If I did, here it is. Chuck Swindoll, I remember him saying years ago, maybe you know that name, maybe you don't. Uh, if not, discover it. Chuck Swindoll said years ago that most believers, listen to me, most believers do not experience living the victorious Christian life. Most believers do not experience on the regular, on the daily, living a victorious Christian life because we settle. We settle for giving into and yielding to the flesh. We don't battle as we ought to. We don't walk, we don't live, we don't keep. All words relating to the spirit, allowing him to work in and through us as we battle, trying to live the victorious, fruitful Christian life. 
And so Paul says, uh, Peter says this, keep sober in spirit. Listen to this definition. Sober in spirit describes, and let me ask you, does this describe you? Does this describe us? It, this is what, what is conveyed in the phrase sober in spirit. Describes a Christian who is in full control of his, watch this, his speech and conduct in contrast to someone who allows his flesh to govern him. I'm gonna read that again, that's large, listen to this. Sober in spirit describes a believer, a Christian, who is in full control of his speech and conduct in contrast to someone who allows his flesh, i.e. his sinful human nature, to govern him. Who's winning today, your flesh or his spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit? Who's winning the battle? And so I love the theme. I hope you'll come back to it often, the theme of, of, of walk, live, keep, relating correctly to our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. It's the only way we can do it. Keep sober, he says, in spirit disciplined in our thinking, allowing the Holy Spirit, uh, not emphasized here, but understood elsewhere, allowing the Holy Spirit to govern our thinking, our speech, and the like. Be alert, be awake, be disciplined. It's these kinds of words that Peter uses and Paul uses to make sure that we have girded up the loins of our mind that we are prepared for action. We're ready to go, allowing nothing to distract or delude us or get in the way of spirit-filled living. What are you looking at? I mean, seriously, as you go about your day, it's Wednesday, middle of the week, what, what is your gaze? What is your focus? What are you looking at. I spent a little time in the South, uh, went to Dallas Seminary, 91 to 94, lived in Tennessee from 94 to 2005. So I picked up some of the uh, Southern expressions uh, along the way. And one of the phrases they use is fixing. I'm fixing to go to the store. I'm fixing to go out for dinner. I'm fixing to go to church. And I'm asking you this question this morning. What are you fixing your eyes on? I want to suggest this to you. Cobb, did I say that right? Was that acceptable? Thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, brother. Cobb made, Cobb made some peach ice cream the other day. I don't know if you knew that. And maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, but it was, uh, Cobb, it was delectable. It really was. What are you looking at? Paul tells Titus, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What have we decided and determined to fix our eyes upon? Peter writes and he says this, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love how Peter wrote and thought and talked about salvation. 
He looked at salvation in its entirety. He didn't just look at salvation in a one-time transactional kind of way when we make a decision to trust in Christ alone and positionally we are sanctified. We are declared righteous. Justification takes place. When Paul thought about, excuse me, Peter thought about salvation, he didn't think only about positional sanctification, that one-time moment when we trust in Christ and all those things happen, that moment when sincere saving faith occurs. He thought about that, but that's not all he thought about. He thought about the process of salvation, the idea of progressive sanctification. He closes his writings, his last words really, with a benediction that says, you need to be on guard, be on guard, but also grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he thought about salvation, he didn't think just about the moment someone was saved, justification, declared righteous, positional sanctification. He also thought about the moment by moment, the moment by moment, the moment by moment, becoming more and more like Jesus until we're with him. Some of us remember some camp songs of old where we would sing, bless you, little by little, every day. Little by little, in every way, my Jesus is what? He's changing me. Since I made a turnabout face, I've been growing in his, what, Cobb? Grace. I'm not picking on Cobb today. We just go back a minute. My Jesus is changing me. That's progressive sanctification. It is supposed to be this, sports fans. Listen to me. It's supposed to be that each and every day we are more and more like Christ until we are with Christ. Is that happening? Or have you just checked out because you know you have uh, your eternal, eternality secured, you have assurance of eternal life, and so you just want to do life your way? See, Peter didn't think about salvation that way. He thought about positional sanctification and progressive sanctification little by little every day and then ultimate or complete sanctification, otherwise known as what? That's right, glorification. And that's what he's talking about here. Is your hope fixed upon the end of the salvation story? Previously, he says in in verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Positional, progressive, ultimate, or complete sanctification. Glorification is the end game. And Paul says, that's what we need to be looking for. That's what we need to be focused on. And let me just tell you this, when you go through difficulty, when you go through suffering, when you go through heartache, when you go through struggle, it is then, my friends, that it's much more natural to focus on what is yet to come. When you're living in comfortable cush land, it's easy to just live for the here and now. And Peter is saying, you better get your mind right. Get your act together. Gird up the loins of your mind and prepare for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more to come, and what is to come is the best. 
And so again, we're supposed to think about that. How often do you think about that? Be real. <laughs> Be real. How often do you think about that? What is yet to come, our blessed hope, the glorious, of our, uh, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's supposed to be what we are fixing our eyes and our hope upon. And then he says this. You're not going to like this. Listen to me. But he says it, and we're supposed to do it because obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. Some of us sang that chorus too. I said this to you numerous times, but I'm gonna say it again. I wear this out on my children and they're so grateful. But doing life God's way is the best way. Not just out of duty, but out of the clue phone being picked up and realizing that if I do life God's way, that's when I will be most fulfilled, satisfied, and blessed. If you do life the way it's suggested on the internet, and all things social media, your life will be miserably empty. Doing life God's way is the best way, so obey. And Paul, uh, Peter, I keep saying Paul, so sorry, I know it's Peter. And Peter says in verse 14, here's what that looks like. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. This is huge. This connects to Galatians 5. It connects to Romans chapter 6. It's this idea that we as believers should not live like we used to be because we are not who we used to be. The old is gone and the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. Let me read to you. You don't even have to go there. We don't have time. But listen to what Peter says in a couple chapters later. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that's not the bad flesh, that means in our bodies. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, listen to me, no longer for the lust of men. There's a, there's a choice here for believers to no longer live for the lust of men, but instead, rather, end of verse two, chapter four, but for the will of God. And he says this in verse three, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. What is Peter saying in chapter four? He's saying this, come on now. Stop living this way. Would you just stop it? You have had enough time to live fleshly. You have had enough time to waste on pursuing the desires of the flesh. Stop doing it. Stop wasting time. Make a decision. Choose wisely and say, I'm no longer going to live this way. I'm no longer going to live my life pursuing my stuff, the works of the flesh so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. There's an urgency, as Peter writes. There's words that he uses that convey that. And he says, you have wasted enough time. Enough time has passed for you to live this way. 
That's not who you are any longer, so don't look that way and live that way and walk that way. And so that's why he says in our verse, uh, in verse 14, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That's how it used to be, but that's not who you are now. But he conveys there's a reality of making wise choices, so gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit, not diluted or distracted in any way, but rather disciplined. Fix your eyes on the ultimate completion of salvation, glorification when Christ returns and obey. The word conformed here is used somewhere else. Do you know where? Only one other spot, I'm pretty sure. Correct me on that, theologians. But it's used here and in one other passage. That's right, John Jimmo, Romans 12. I've heard Dr. McLeod speak eloquently on that passage more than once. The reality of not being conformed, fitting into and squeezing into the mold of this world, but being transformed. Paul says it, Peter says it, and here it is. As obedient children, do not be squeezed into the mold of the world, conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. When you didn't know any better, truth be known, believer, you know better now. And so stop living this way. I love how Paul states it in Romans 6. He says it this way plainly. He says to a believer, stop taking yourself and uh, the instruments of your body, your mind, your body, stop taking yourself and saying to sin, hello, here I am. Have your way. I am giving myself, I'm presenting myself to you. Do you recognize whenever you go to that site and whenever you look at and whenever you listen to and whenever you say what shouldn't be said, you know what you're doing? You're saying to sin, have your way with me. Because we are dead to it, positionally and theologically. When you read and study Romans 6, you should rightly conclude that I don't ever have to sin again. We will because we struggle. But we don't have to. And when we do, it's because we choose to every time. And so Paul says and Peter says, stop it. Stop living this way. You're not who you used to be. You've wasted enough time pursuing fleshly desires. What you want, what I want, and sin is that. Sin is selfishness. And he says, stop doing that. Paul says it and Peter says it. Instead, be obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But watch this, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, we saw that last night, right? Holy, holy, holy. Threefold repetition in Isaiah 6, also in Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy. But like the Holy One who called you, he says this. This is going convict to convict you to the core, and it should. And it does me as well. I've been camping out in this passage for a while, and it's crazy convicting, but also of great comfort. And he says this. 
Be holy, watch this, in absolutely all your behavior. That's not optional, by the way. That is what is required of those of us who are new creations in Christ. As we are keeping sober, as we are fixing our hope, as we are thinking about this completion of our salvation and as we're purposing to be obedient children, he says, in everything you say, in everything you hear, in everything you think, in everything you do, be holy in all your behavior. Let me ask you this question. Do you find yourself wanting to somehow explain that away? That doesn't really mean I have to do that, right? In all my behavior, I'm supposed to be holy, really? Isn't there, isn't there this uh, grace card that I could, I could play that allows me to do what I want to do and see what I want to see and say what I want to say and hear what I want to hear and think what I want to think? Isn't, isn't that part of the Christian life, that we can take this concept of grace and mercy and use it licentiously for our own fleshly behavior? Can I do that? It's not supposed to be that way. Peter says, Stop. Get your mind right, get your act together and live this way in all your behavior, in all of it. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy, here's why, for I am holy. And don't forget about the, our standing in Christ, that we've been declared righteous. So this is not something we have to figure out on our own. This is who we are in our new creation uh, status and, and standing. And so we're supposed to be who we're supposed to be and live the way we ought to live with his help to walk, to live, to keep. Verse 17 says this, and by the way, I'll say this in our closing moments. Uh, we have seen, and I haven't intentionally highlighted it, but we have seen three motivations, overriding or overarching motivations for godly living. I remember being taught this decades ago. There are three reasons why we ought to live the Christian life. We ought to be holy in all our behavior. Three motivating factors. You know what they are? Here they are. This is free. One is fear. I said last night, we've lost a reverential awe of our great God. And we have instead made him more teddy bear-like than we ought. A reverential awe and fear. Fear motivates us to godly living. Love, we've seen that. He loved us and gave himself for us. Makes logical sense that I would love him and give myself for him. Love motivates us to godly living. But you want to know another one? Reward. Fear, love, and reward. All biblical motivations for godly living. And watch how Peter closes our section, uh, or we close this section from Peter. It says this. And if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, and we do, by the way, it's not a, a question of whether or not, since we address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Remember that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, I mentioned hurriedly at the end of our first session, we make it our aim, we make it our ambition to be him. Whether we're coming and going in all situations, whether, whether as we are alive and doing what we're doing and everything that I would be pleasing to him. You know what it says in 10? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And it says this reality here. And watch this last phrase. This is, this is large. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves. This has everything to do with how we are going to live as we gird up the loins of our mind. Conduct yourselves in what? In fear. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. I love that phrase. During your time of stay upon the earth, live with the mindset of reverential awe and fear because our lives will be evaluated. I have a present for you. You'll receive it on the way out. It's a tool that I received when I was a student at Emmaus. I had many of, uh, several of your instructors as my instructor. Um, one of my favorites is no longer here, uh, but Mr. Ken Daughters uh, was one of my favorite teachers back in the day. And in a course entitled Applied Theology, he gave us this handout, uh, Guideposts, I think it was entitled, for Christian Living. And there were some 16 or 17 principles that would help us when we're trying to make these tough decisions, when we're trying to, to choose wisely that really help us to understand that character counts. I'm gonna text him later, later today to just thank him for that handout. I want you to have that handout. And when you're wondering, should I see this? Should I do this? Should I go there? Should I click on? Look at these 16, 17 principles to help you make decisions that would help you conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay upon the earth. Father, we ask for your help. We're desperate for it. We sure are. We've been asking and hoping uh, that answers would be uh, determined. We've been asking, what is the condition of my heart? Am I wholehearted? Am I half-hearted? Am I no-hearted? Am I in my natural state, natural condition, a natural man, a natural woman? Am I a believer who doesn't look like it or live like it, who's still carnal yet carnal? still fleshly, or am I a spiritual person, wholehearted like Caleb, like David, Caleb, Joshua, and others who have gone before us, many who are living that out in front of us. And so, Father, help us as we close to think of these words from Peter. Help us, help us to prepare our minds for action, to keep sober in spirit, not distracted, not diluted in any way in our thinking to fix our eyes on our salvation's end, the completion of salvation, glorification, ultimately taking place when Christ returns for us. And in the meantime, may we obey. May we not be conformed to the way we used to be because we're not who we used to be. May we be transformed instead by the renewing of our minds. And as crazy as it seems, May we be holy in absolutely all our behavior. Help us to this end, we pray. May we be motivated by fear, as we have seen in our series. May we be motivated by love, as we have seen in our series. And may we be motivated by reward, as we have seen in our series as well. Father, help us to walk, help us to live, help us to keep. May we relate rightly to the Holy Spirit and may we experience 
victorious Christian living. Not allowing the flesh to rule and to reign because we are actually dead to it. But submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves, denying ourselves and allowing the spirit to work in and through us. Help us to help us to walk. Help us to live. Help us to keep. We ask these things in Jesus name for your glory. Amen.